Shalom, Salam, and welcome to the History of the Land of Israel podcast. I am Shail Ben Ephraim, and I welcome you to the one podcast with the guts to survey the most provocative historical narrative in the world. And before we start, I want to thank all the new supporters of our podcast, Mark, Aliyah, Ophir, Gregory, and Andy, who all run. If you want to join this illustrious list of supporters, please support Shael Media on Patreon. That allows me to continue producing this podcast. So, we're now at the Iron Age era in the land of Israel, after a very spending a very, very long time uh, in the Bronze Age. And it is the collapse of Egypt and the coming of the Sea People that bring on this new uh, era. So after the Sea People had come, you know, Egypt had taken a very terrible blow. And the overrunning of the Hittite Empire and large parts of Canaan deprived that empire of much of its access to silver, iron from Anatolia, and wood from Lebanon. Adding to the bad luck, gold and copper began to run out in the mines in Timna and Nubia. The might of Egypt and the Hittite Empire had kept Canaan stable and subdued for generations. But all that changed now. The Shasu, nomads who are very similar to modern Bedouins, made it challenging to trade and travel through the routes leading from Jordan into Syria and Mesopotamia. Meanwhile, the newly emerged Philistine shut off the roads on the coast up to Lebanon and Anatolia. These raucous sea people had started by taking over Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ashdod, settling them after they had been destroyed in the initial wave of invasion. Meanwhile, they burned towns further north to the ground, including Fek and Tel Kaysan. They spread to the southern area bordering Sinai, where Egypt had based its imperial control, and extended into the Shvela and the Jordan Valley. Now, Egypt had tried to maintain control over Canaan. Ramses III attempted to come to terms with the Philistines. You can see written on his tomb, quote, I settled them in fortresses where they were confined by name. He also tried to bribe them into being peaceful and allowing trade through. Here's another quote. I supplied them all by tax with clothing and provisions, reckoned against the treasury, the granaries each year, end quote. Egypt even built city walls and gates for the Philistines in the hopes this would confine them to their own cities. And this all sounds kind of desperate, but it might have worked for a while. But Egyptian power faded. The Philistines eventually ceased cooperating, if they ever cooperated, we don't know, and began to prey on the trade routes. Within 15 years of the death of Ramses III, any fealty the Philistines had paid to Egypt were, was abandoned. They answered to no one. All this led to inflation and severe economic problems. There were strikes by unpaid workers, and state business ground to a halt in 1115 BCE. During this time, we first hear something that was, was very shocking to Egyptians at this time. Robberies in the great tombs of Egyptian kings like Seti I and Ramses II. That would have been unimaginable at the peak of Egyptian power. And it got to the point where many mummies were hidden from robbers, you know. They were holy. And they were not safe. In some cases, Egyptologists only discovered these hidden relics in the 19th century. Some were concealed so well, we still have no idea where they are. So, you know, there might be some exciting Egyptologist finds in our future, or not. As always, people said, things ain't what they used to be, and blamed moral degradation. A later Greek historian, Diodorus of Sicily, explained what happened. Quote, Kings succeeded to the throne for seven generations, who were confirmed sluggards and were devoted only to indulgence and luxury. End quote. And I, I never really buy these explanations. Every time an empire falls, they talk about how bad the new generation is. But usually there's material uh, differences and changes in conditions that lead to those things. Because morals were never all that great, but material conditions can change. New power centers emerged in Egypt now, and Thebes lost its centrality. Priests increased in power and prestige, and local leaders no longer assumed the trappings of kingship. The Pharaonic Empire was no longer the great international power it had once been. Best evidence for this is how their closest ally, Byblos, treated them. 
In 10,000 BCE, Egypt demanded tribute from this once incredibly subservient city. The king of the Lebanese city was enraged. He wrote, quote, If the ruler of Egypt were my lord, and if I were his vassal, he would not have to cause gold and silver to be brought with this request. Perform the business of Amun, but I am not your vassal, nor the vassal of him that sent you, end quote. All this shows that Egypt still had aspirations of imperial control in the area, but it just didn't have the pull that it used to. It couldn't achieve it. I mean, compare that with the obsequious messages the king of Byblos had sent in the Amarna years. If you remember that episode, the difference is striking. And without Egyptian power to check them, the Philistines spread throughout the country. They encircled the central highlands of what we today call Judea and Samaria. To be more precise, the people that we today call the Philistines, or that the Bible would call the Philistines, at this point were actually three different tribes. The Shardana, the Teucrians, and the Philistines, the Pleshit. They developed a similar culture, and the word everyone in the region used to describe them was Philistines. So it became a sort of shorthand for these invaders of the coastal area. Kind of like the word Canaanite came to describe basically anyone who came originally from Canaan. The Shirton were known for their distinctive horned helmets and ferocious fighting capabilities. There are several theories about their origin, but perhaps the most convincing one pertains to Sardinia. They'd also cooperated often with the Egyptians, and some had been among the personal bodyguards of Ramses III. They appear to have settled on the northern coast and in the Galilee. The Tugrians are more mysterious and are sometimes linked to Troy, as we discussed in the previous episode. There's definitely some link between the Philistines and Troy, and uh, hopefully history will unravel that further in the future. But neither had much of an independent existence in Canaan. They were soon swallowed by the Philistines culturally. We'll see something similar in the Crusades era, when the Europeans stuck together and created a united culture in their invasion, regardless of whether they were Frankish, Norman, Germanic, or Italian. Now, because they were marauding sea people, the Philistines managed to rule the waves in the eastern Mediterranean for a few decades after entering Canaan. One fascinating thing about the early Philistines is that their original homes were being destroyed while they began to thrive and prosper in Canaan. You see, the Aegean civilization from which they had arisen was demolished around 1200 BCE by waves of migrations that they were part of. Essentially, while they were driving out Hittites and Canaanites, others were raiding and eliminating the source of their culture. That process is not entirely understood, but in 1250, Thebes, the Greek one, not the Egyptian one, was destroyed. We don't know who invaded it or why. And this isn't a podcast on ancient Greece, so I don't have to worry about this too much. But it's good to remember that the Philistines were now refugees from a world that no longer existed. Sounds like a great trailer for a movie. And much of what we know about Philistine culture comes from their beautiful pottery. It's been described as a combination of the Helladic tradition of the Aegean, along with a notable amount of influence from Cyprus. Even the local Canaanites sometimes admitted it was more sophisticated than their own. The names of the Philistines were often Aegean, even centuries after arriving. For example, Goliath and Achish were initially from that region. But in other ways, they became more local. Over time, the Philistines abandoned their native languages and switched to a form of more Semitic language. Now, a word of warning about Iron Age and its source. Um, until now, we've had contemporary Egyptian sources and some archives of city-states. The Late Bronze Age, well, not necessarily rich uh, texts that have survived, had a pretty good selection. But the early Iron Age was one of upheaval, and there are way fewer written records. Most of what we know, or what we think we know, is from later sources, such as the Tanakh, and the quotes of Josephus Flavius from texts of the time, and so on. The Egyptians even abandoned Thebes, where we would find many of our written records, and moved to Tanis, and there they seem to have recorded far less. So, this really is a period of darkness from the perspective of the composed record doesn't mean it was a period of darkness in terms of, you know, civilization or anything like that. We're not buying into that kind of narrative. But we just have less sources. Um, so we use the Tanakh a lot, which is, of course, a great source, but is written much later. 
And there were other sources of the time, but not too many. Here's a summary of a few of them. There's the Teldon Stele, which actually contains the only extra-biblical reference to the house of David. It says in Aramaic that an individual named Jehoram, or Yoram, of Israel, the son of Ahab, and king of the house of David, uh, ruled at the time. It sits well with the second book of Kings, because there Jehoram is mentioned as the son of a king, Ahab, and his Phoenician wife, Jezebel. So, probably the same person. The most likely candidate for writing this was Hazael, the king of Aram Damascus. In Kings, it said that he conquered most of Israel, but could not take Jerusalem. Since he was from Aram, his language was naturally Aramaic, which will eventually become the lingua franca of the region. There's also two Assyrian steles dating to 852 and 879 BCE. These are descriptions of the kingships of, I'm going to try to say this, Ashur Nasipral, Nasirpal II, and his son, Dalamaneser III. Great names. They refer to the Battle of Kartar, among other things. In that battle, the Neo-Assyrians fought with a coalition of 11 kings. We'll talk a lot about the Neo-Assyrians. Among them, Ahab, a king of Israel, is mentioned. The monolith credits Ahab with committing a force of 2,000 chariots and 10,000 foot soldiers to the Assyrian War Coalition. Though he was part of a coalition along with many others. Interestingly, it also contains the first known mention of the Arabs in recorded history, people that will have, as we know, a very important role to play in the land of Israel. The battle took place in what is today the Hama Governorate in northwestern Syria. Then we have the Moabit Stone. Um, we don't have many sources this good from the judges' area, so we really treasure it. The uh, Moabite stone is steely that is written in Phoenician text, bit similar to Paleo-Hebrew. The Phoenicians um, are the people of uh, Lebanon that developed from the Canaanites. They became more seagoing, seafaring, and related to the Punic people who fought against the Romans in uh, the Punic War. Um, the Steely tells of the Moab. The kingdom of Israel fought the Moab, and it tells about the wars from the Moabite perspective, which makes it fascinating because we're used to these texts talking from the Israelite perspective. According to this Steely, the kingdom of Moab was punished by its god, Semosh. Therefore, he allowed it to be subjugated by the kingdom of Israel. It refers to Israel as the house of Omri. And that's interesting. We'll talk about that. We see more references to the house of Israel than we see to the house of Judah or to any united monarchy, which has led some people to think the house of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, was more powerful than either one. Um, afterwards, Chemosh freed the people of Moab from tyranny, the tyranny of the Israelites, of course. I find this utterly fascinating. It provides us with a glimpse into the inner drama of the Moabites. Much of the Tanakh offers similar insight to the Israelites. The other people around the Israelites were very similar. They were just as anxious that their national gods had abandoned them. That was just how people dealt with the uncertainties of geopolitics at the time. It also may have served as an excuse for when a war didn't go well. It's not my fault, it's because you guys are all sinners. It's convenient for politicians to worm their way out of responsibility. We also should note that these texts, the Tanakh and the Moabite Stone, were probably written by priests and therefore bring a priestly explanation for things. Basically, if you follow our rules and our guidelines, we will win all the wars and everyone will be rich. But um, historian Brandon Benz also gives another explanation for this model. He says attributing these events to Chemosh would have, quote, played a role in sustaining Moabite identity during a time of Israelite domination, and it would dissuade members of this community from transferring their affiliations to an entity whose divine patron appeared more powerful, if not more real, end quote. And that's a great point. Today, there are some pretty hard and fast boundaries between religions. You don't really have many people converting from Islam to Christianity and vice versa en masse because they feel one is stronger than the other because there's a big taboo on converting. But at that time, most people believed in many gods. You might believe in your own national god, but also in the Israelite god at the same time if you're a Moabite. So this tool 
um, helped keep people on the straight and narrow uh, and from moving to other gods. So that gives us a little bit of insight into the Israelite plight as well. Um, if you read the Tanakh, there's constant mentions in it of the rivals of the Israelite god. Those rivals are, in particular, the Baal and the Asherah, who the Israelites constantly are tempted to worship, perhaps when they feel that their national god is not as strong. Similar dilemma to what the Moabites felt when they were being dominated by the Israelites in the house of Omri. Since these gods were also national ones, kings and priests tried to make this matter one of patriotism. They worked in conjunction with each other, but also in tension, each attempting to use the word of their god to provide legitimacy for their rule. As S. Nadidit put it, much of the book of Judges does the same thing. He explains that, quote, it is shaped to create an image of a failed leadership and political chaos, justify and valorize the institutions of the monarchy and the Davidic dynasty in particular, end quote. So it's very hard once you have these national gods to disentangle the fortunes and the propaganda of national institutions and religious institutions from these texts that purport to be religious. The arrival of the Philistines and the removal of the empires completely changed society in Canaan and the Iron Age. You see, during the Bronze Age, political units were based on city-states. The areas controlled by each city contained all sorts of ethnicities, primarily Canaanite, Egyptian, and Hurrian, but all sorts. Nonetheless, they were primarily based on geography, not on ethnicity. Meanwhile, the Iron Age city-state was more of an ethnic unit. The Sea People invasion had made ethnicity far more important than it was before, because they pitted newcomers against the indigenous population. It was more common to give the cities the name of the relevant ethnic group. The town was no longer the center of identity, rather it was the tribe. And it's no coincidence this was the era of the 12 tribes of Israel, a concept that we will discuss in future episodes. And ethnic communities tend to be more intolerant than the cosmopolitan imperial ones. That's a rule of politics and society, and we see that in the Iron Age as well. These communities often worshipped one god rather than many, which doesn't mean they didn't believe the other ones existed, but they focused on their national god. They focused on the god that was identified with their ethnic community. Since the newcomers were ethnically oriented and raiders, they invaded and displaced their neighbors more than the pastoralists who had dominated society during the Egyptian imperial heyday. So there was more dislocation, and that meant that there was more threat to national and ethnic identities, which in turn actually strengthens them. And it wasn't just the Philistines. In Syria and eastern Lebanon, the remaining cities embraced their Hittite identity. Empire centered in Anatolia was gone, but the culture remained and became more critical now, more insulated with outsiders facing it. The collapse of the Bronze Age society also allowed other newcomers into the region, most significantly Arameans. We first see mention of this culture in the 12th century BCE. They're named after their earliest known homeland, Aram, often referred to in the Bible as Aram Naharaim, which at its west moved from the um, Lebanon mountains to beyond the Euphrates River in the east in territory that formerly belonged to the Mitanni. Their language, Aramean, is related to Hebrew, Canaanite, and the Phoenician tongue. So they're likely ethnically of the area. However, they were not numerous until the Iron Age came along. The lack of a mighty empire in that area at this time in the early Iron Age allowed their culture to spread. There were no Hittites to, to block them. Soon it built powerful city-states, particularly in Geshur and Damascus, which had formerly been a Canaanite city. And what about those Canaanites? They didn't disappear. However, their domain had shrunk significantly. Many old strongholds in western Lebanon remained with their long-held Canaanite culture. Byblos, Tyre, Sidon, and Beirut. You'll notice these are primarily coastal cities, and that saw the orientation of the culture change. There had always been Canaanites who looked to the sea and traded, especially on the coast, but now was the focal point of the entire culture. Newly realigned culture is therefore 
uh, known to eternity as the Phoenicians. You can probably imagine the influence of these new circumstances on the Israelites. They were soon in the process of creating their own sort of ethnic state. Otherwise, they would be swept away in the recent ethnic fault lines created by the early Iron Age. Because of the Tanakh, we know more about the Israelites in this period than anyone else. But because the, the books in the Tanakh were written so much later, um, we don't get necessarily the clearest picture of what was actually happening. And sometimes um, analysts and historians have to disentangle what is a good recounting of what happened at the time in the early Iron Age or what the Bible calls the uh, Judges era, and what is a later addition, what is a later recounting. Um, one interesting element in the Tanakh is the absence of the legacy of Egyptian domination. If you read the Torah, the division between the land of Canaan and the land of Egypt is clear and absolute. And of course, that clear division emerged thanks to the Philistines. Before that, it was a colony, something that the Tanakh either isn't aware of or prefers not to mention. It essentially removed Egyptian colonialism from the era. But in the memory of the Israelites, at least according to the Torah, the division had always been there. The Book of Judges is our best source for the earliest period in Israelite history. The book was written in the late 7th or early 6th century BCE. And it covers a long 350 years from the end of the book of Joshua, which covered the conquest of Canaan by that figure, to the rise of the first Israelite kingdom under Samuel. However, by that time, those days had long gone by. Therefore, as uh, Redford tells us, quote, an historian must, if he chooses to use it at all, treat judges pretty much as he would treat the medieval Grail legends or the Alexander romance as a collection of stories based on historical figures dimly remembered, but in no way as a reliable source. That's an understandable viewpoint, but that's not how I'm going to treat it. As Redford himself mentions, the individuals cited in this book often appear elsewhere, such as in the Onomasticons, books of names of the time. Therefore, we have reason to believe there's at least some historical truth to these stories. Second, as we discussed in the episode about the Egyptian exodus, sometimes the stories matter more than the reality. They certainly can have a good deal more influence in the long term. And as we'll see, the Book of Judges has a lot of elements that don't seem um, related to the time when they were written as much as they seem like relics from the time that they're addressing. And that's something that we're going to look at. But taking the Book of Judges seriously doesn't mean tackling it uncritically. In this podcast, we don't treat any book as written by God. After all, that can't be proven. It's a matter of personal belief. Some people believe the Quran was written by God. Other people believe the Tanakh was written by God. That's just personal belief, one that I respect, but don't necessarily share. I think books were written by people, perhaps with divine inspiration. Actually, not an atheist. Therefore, we take into account how and where these books were written. In the books, all the main characters operate in the area surrounding Jerusalem, Hebron, Shem, that area. So it puts Jerusalem at the center of activity. It's almost certain that other locales, most notably in the north, had different stories featuring different characters, or maybe they featured the same people but changed their biographical details, such as where they were from. So it's important to remember um, these books were written in a way that puts Jerusalem at the center and in a way puts the temple and the priests at the center. So it has that bias in the way that it's recounting the early Israelite history. So let's take a bit of a look at the book of Judges. Chapter 9 of the book is universally believed to be one of the earliest texts in the Tanakh. It starts with Avimelech, uh, and we'll discuss his roots in a moment, appealing to the lords of Shechem to recognize him as their sole leader. 
They agree, but the relationship sours, and they abort Gaal over him. Abimelech does not appreciate this and kills Gaal and destroys the people of Shechem. After all, they are disloyal bastards. He then attacks Tebez, another city, and finds his death there by a woman who hurled a millstone at him and cracked his skull. I will let the rest of the text speak for itself. Quote, Draw your dagger and finish me off, that they may not say a woman killed him. So his attendants stabbed him and he died. When the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone went home. End quote. Okay, I won't let that speak for itself. First of all, I love that everyone went home ending. And it's not the only one in the book of Judges. I think it's great. It reminds me of when Cartman says, screw you guys, I'm going home in South Park. Second, it's fitting that we wouldn't even notice today that a woman had killed Abimelech if he wasn't insistent on drawing attention to it. But anyway, the inclusion of Shem in this story helps us periodize it. Assuming this isn't fiction, and I really don't think it is, Archaeological digs at Tel Balata show that the city was destroyed around 1125 BCE. Therefore, this story likely occurred before then. It thus reflects the formative days of the Israelites. Finkelstein argues this may have occurred a century later, but either way, this is a reasonably early event. The early date is important because at this time, Shem was still very much a Canaanite city. We don't really see any particular Israelite flavor to it, so it might have been in transition at the time. And the way the text of Judges 9 is used in the book of Judges is clearly created to create a contrast between Israel and Shem in that area. There is indeed, doubtless, a Canaanite flavor to this story. The city of Shem had a deliberative clan body here. In the first lines in the story, we can see that when Abimelech asks, quote, which is better for you, be ruled by 70 men by all the sons of Jerubal, or to be ruled by one man, end quote. That's how he tries to convince them that it's better to be ruled by one king rather than a bunch of people, which, by the way, and we'll discuss this a little bit in this episode, goes against ethos of the book of Judges that, and the book of Samuel, that kingship is wrong in the Israelite nation. Even more, um, Canaanites are the religious authority in Shem. The text discusses what happened once they were convinced to support Bimelech. Quote, they gave him 70 shekels from the temple of Baal Brit, and with this Abimelech hired some worthless and reckless fellows, and they followed him, end quote. So in other words, they gave him money from the temple of Baal, the Canaanite god, he then used that money to hire a bunch of goons. And of course, the implication here is that, you know, using ill-gotten gains from a bad heathen god um, is a natural thing. But that also makes us wonder why are the people of Shem worshipping Baal? Why is the main um, temple there one for Baal? Well, because at this time, the city was in transition from the Canaanite culture and religion to the Israelite one. And we can see here that the early Israelites most likely worshipped Baal, which is why um, the Tanakh talks so much about why it's important not to worship Baal. The writers of the Tanakh were priests of the temple who were very much against the worship of Baal, which took away from their political and religious power. Anyway. Getting back to the beginning of the story, the fact that Abimelech had to appeal to the people of Shem is quite significant. If you think back to our episodes about the Amarna letters, you might remember we discussed the king of Byblos, one Ribchada. When leaving his city, his brother stirred up the people against him. This happened through an appeal to the elders of the town. Here is the quote from that. Quote, and my brother spoke and swore to the city, and the lords of the city had a discussion, and they aligned themselves with the sons of Abdi Asirta. Very similar to how um, Avimelech went into Shem and stirred the people up there as well. So there's a fascinating political structure here. The king doesn't have absolute power in this Canaanite city-state structure. Instead, they seem to kind of serve at the pleasure of a council of elders who can be persuaded to remove the monarch from power. And just like in Judges 9, family is involved here. The appeal is to the well-being of the community. 
also to family and clan ties. The form of authority that is very similar is also described in later books in the Bible when Israel enters its more monarchical period. For example, listen to this period, uh, this part of 1 Samuel. The hero of the book, Samuel, wants to lead the people so he can command them in a war against the Ammonites. Um, here's the relevant quote. Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and inaugurate the monarchy. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there at Gilgal they declared Saul the king before the Lord. End quote. Of course, the priests who wrote the Tanakh are emphasizing the role of God in anointing the king. But the text shows you needed the approval of the people, which almost certainly meant the heads of the households in particular. So not everyone, certainly not women or slaves. But still, it's a relatively egalitarian structure. And the people of Judah also appointed King David, as can be seen clearly. So you may be thinking that these councils might have been rubber stamps, but they weren't. For example, when the king Rehoboam tried to replace Solomon as king, um, this part didn't go so well. The section in Kings 1, chapter 12, tells us all about it. Rehoboam went to Shechem. All of Israel had to come to Shechem to acclaim him as king. Jeroboam and the entire assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam as follows. Your father made our yoke heavy. Now lighten the harsh labor and heavy yoke of your father laid on us and we will serve you. The story is great. He says he'll sleep on it and talk to the elders who served as his counsel. They told him to be friendly and diplomatic and say, yeah, I will lighten your yoke. Then he asked his bro friends what to do, and they, of course, told Rehoboam to say that he would make their life worse for some reason. So, of course, he listened to his dumb friends. The people were displeased, and the book tells us, quote, When all of Israel saw that the king had not listened to them, the people answered the king, We have no portion in David, no share in Jesse's son, to your tents, O Israel. Now look to your own house, O David. So the Israelites returned to their homes, end quote. Again, with the going home. Love that. But what this shows us is that kings had to convince the people of Israel uh, that they would benefit them. Otherwise, they wouldn't get the approval. And this shows a certain kind of more democratic model than we usually associate with kingship. Think about the meaning of what's happening here. In England, nobility fought to receive influence in the Magna Carta. Meanwhile, ancient Israel was already way ahead of the of Jephthah, Gideon, and Abimelech. We'll discuss all three. We already discussed Abimelech. All involve large parts of the population. The people, or Ha'am, is used here. It's unclear who that included. Um, probably not women or slaves, but perhaps all men, because Ha'am is probably the most egalitarian word in the Hebrew language. In the case of Abimelech and Jephthah, it isn't even God who sets the wheels in motion. Instead, it's the people. A sign of a somewhat different religious and political culture among the early Israelites than what we'll see later. And there are some other fascinating elements here as well. While the Council of Shechem agreed to support Abimelech from the start and fund him, they did not put him up as king over them until his coup succeeded. That shows that a combination of two factors made him a worthy leader. Family ties and military prowess. That's similar to what we saw with the Amuru clans in Lebanon, episode 31. Why does this matter? Well, it speaks to different sources and forms of authority. We look at clans and kingdoms as different government and social organization systems. Chiefs are made, chiefly, pardon the pun, through their family lineage. Meanwhile, a king is more of an achieved rank, often related to their competence in warfare and diplomacy. The story of Avimelech shows how the two intertwine. Clan ties got his foot in the door, but his military prowess put him on the top, until a rowdy woman and her millstone got in the way. There are also signs that Abimelech was a king of more than Shechem. According to the text, he appointed one Zebul as his governor in Shechem. Or in Hebrew, that role would be Sal the minister of the city. He also ruled Tebez. So there was a kingdom that went beyond the city-state here. And that tradition will continue in the Tanakh as well. King David would be king of the cities of Israel and of Judah. 
So we're already seeing that move from city-state to kingdom. This puts the development of Israelite kingship into perspective. The type of rule we see from Gideon and Avimelech is very similar to what we expect from a Canaanite king in the Amarna era. His rule over the tribes of Israel was decentralized. The description of his Midianite enemies also shows two kings and underling rulers. So this was the norm at the time, just like in the Amarna days. That's of course because they emerged from that culture. Although there are differences between what we see here and the descriptions of the kingship of David and Solomon, there are also many points of continuity. So what we have here is fascinating. Bible attests directly to the socio-political realities of the late Bronze Age. It's an exciting confirmation of the usefulness of judges in illuminating the bridge between the Canaanite world and the Israelites. The continuity also fits the archaeological evidence. At the same time, there was plenty of destruction in the coastal areas where the Philistine invaded. Inland in Judea and Samaria, there was no record of destruction for long after. So the emergence of the Israelites from among the Canaanites was thus peaceful and allowed for a significant amount of continuity. And we can see that firmly in institutions. If you've read the book of Judges and know the theology behind it, you may have noticed approvingly that I called Avimelech a king. And the book of Judges is perhaps best known for recounting a time when judges and prophets ruled, not kings. But that was not a mistake on my part. We've seen that Avimelech became a king of sorts. The text doesn't refer to him by that word, but his role is very kingly indeed. That can seem puzzling because the judges period in Israelite history is often considered the pre-monarchy period. Now, it's also notable how easily Abimelech was appointed king. Meanwhile, in the later book of Samuel, when Saul was appointed king, there is fierce resistance and a seeming cultural taboo to creating kingship. You see, in the story of Moses, God told Moses that the Israelites should be, quote, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Ergo, not a kingdom, which the Tanakh saw as a form of rule for the Gentiles. However, he predicted that the need for a Jewish monarchy would arise someday. After all, this is God. He is all-knowing, right? So according to the Tanakh, the need arose around 880 BCE, after centuries of being led by judges, when the people began demanding a king, quote, like all other nations, end quote. So the prophet Samuel, who was in charge at that time, hesitantly appointed a young Saul as the first king, after God approved him. But the Lord was unhappy and said, quote, It is not you they have rejected. It is me they have rejected as their king. End quote. But despite this forlorn way of putting things, he said to Samuel, quote, Heed their demand, but warn them solemnly and tell them about the practices of any king who will rule over them. So that's the official line of the Tanakh. Kingship is generally bad and shows a distrust in God. And the Israelites only took it in the waning days of Samuel, who then appointed Saul as the first king. But how historically accurate was this narrative? It is possible that references to Avimelech as king were removed to allow continuity with later stories. There are certainly differences in the way the crowning took place. Um, for example, both Saul and David were anointed by a holy prophet. Meanwhile, God is less of a factor in the story of Avimelech. But to me, that all seems like an attempt to remove the trappings of kingship from Avimelech because it goes against the narrative. The role of Avimelech is probably best understood as a smaller scale king than the latter ones rather than as a completely different role. And from this, we can learn about the broader structure of Israel at the time. We are now looking at a collection of independent populations with similar traditions. That is clear from Avimelech's attempt to get the broader people of Israel to follow him, perhaps with some success for a short period, according to Judges 9. This means there was likely another small Israelite kingdom before the days of the United Kingdom. Brandon Benz identifies two likely candidates for earlier kings than Abimelech, the king Gideon and the king Deput. Abimelech's father was the hero Gideon, who defeated the Midianites. He is said to have refused the kingship after defeating them. Here is the relevant quote from Judges 8. Quote, 
Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson as well, for you have saved us from the Midianites. But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you myself, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord alone shall rule over you. End quote. But if you read the rest of the chapter, it's pretty clear that Gideon ruled over them. He took all the earrings taken from the Midianites and made an ephod out of them. What's that? That's the priest's garb. And then, quote, all of Israel went astray after it and it became a snare to him and his household, end quote. By the way, what does an ephod look like? It's a sleeveless tunic made of costly materials, including gold and the finest purple, blue, and scarlet linens. It also had a breastplate with 12 stones, four rows, uh, three rows of four, one of each representing the tribes of Israel. You've probably seen it if you've seen any kind of picture depicting the uh, temple. So aside from the wealth that went into this ephod, Gideon also had many wives and children, one of whom was Avimelech. Indeed, Judges says he had 70 sons, which was, of course, a sign of masculinity, often associated with great kings at this time. References to his household hint that Gideon also started a great dynasty. Then we also have the fact that he called his child Avimelech, which, if you know Hebrew, means my father is king. So, not very subtle. I think that's a slam dunk on my theory that um, Gideon was a king and then Avimelech was a king. Following his death, Gideon's death, we're told that, quote, the Israelites went astray after the Baalim and showed no loyalty either to the Lord or the house of Gideon, despite all the good he had done for Israel, end quote. So this all sounds like Gideon was a very influential king and a pious one, even though for some reason his ephod made the people go astray, but after he's dead, everything that he did was great, which is also a model that we'll see with other Israelite kings. Therefore, J. Davies, calls his refusal to take the throne a fake one, which he says is, quote, couched in the form of a pious refusal with the motive of expressing piety and gaining the favor of his would-be subjects, end quote. That is one possibility, but to me it seems like the priests who wrote the Tanakh later, trying to make an early hero look more like a priest than a king. That's why they even have him wearing a glorious ephod, the high priest's garment in the temple. I seriously doubt that that is accurate, though. This seems to be an attempt to bring priestly power into somewhere where it may not have existed in the original story. Now, granted, there probably were priests at this time, but they were less powerful, and there was no temple to sustain them. They were associated with Aron Habrit, the um, holy ark, which they held at this time. We'll look at the rise of priestly authority and its origins in later episodes. And here is some good evidence that Gideon was likely a king and perhaps even descended from kings. When Gideon was in his prime, he captured the two kings of Midian and he asked them, quote, those men you killed at Tabor, what were they like? And they answered, they look just like you, sons of a king, end quote. But there's more as well. Gideon assigns his son Jether to put the two Midian kings to death. That seems to have had significant dynastic implications for the Israelites and probably all cultures in the region at the time. You see, the dynasties of Saul and Ahab were later destroyed due to the inability of their kin to put royal captives to death. You see, it was the heir's duty to kill enemy kings to show their superiority and their worthiness. Jether failed to do so, which is perhaps the reason Abimelech, who was the son of a concubine, took over instead. After their death, Gideon takes, quote, crescents on the necks of their camels from the Midian kings. That is seen as an appropriation of their signs of kingship, which is what kings do when they defeat their enemies. Furthermore, according to some Jewish traditions, Gideon was the ruler of the tribes of Manasseh, Asher, Zvulun, Naphtali, Abiezer, and Ephraim, making him perhaps a pretty powerful king before ostensibly the Israelites even had kings. Interestingly, though we are told that Gideon led the people of Israel astray, his death had a terrible effect on belief in God, and quote, the sons of Israel turned back and went like prostitutes after the Baal, end quote. The Tanakh can be very judgmental. Then there is my personal favorite, Jephthah, Jephthah the Gileadite, who we are told immediately in the first sentence of chapter 11 of the book of Judges that he is the son of a prostitute. 
Like, dude, throwing shade in the first sentence. But to be fair, this is an important part of the story. Uh, you see, Gilead, his father, uh, had a wife. And she was understandably unhappy that her hubby had sex with a sex worker. And that the fruit of that uh, union was living in their house. So she had her sons drive them out of their home. Soon, quote, men of low character gathered about Jephthah and raided with him. However, the Hebrew is a lot better than the translation. They're described in the book of Judges as anachim rekim, or empty people. We'll see this motif again with King David, who has described as taking refuge as a rebel with a group of distressed, indebted, and bitter men. When the Ammonites attacked Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get this son of a so-and-so to help fight them off. They asked him to be the military commander, which means he must have been a great raider, although that's not mentioned in the story. But our hero reasonably asked, quote, You are the people who rejected me and drove me out of my father's house. How can you come to me now that you are in trouble? Yeah, absolutely. But their response to this was more of a non-response. Quote, Honestly, we have now turned back to you. If you come with us and fight the Ammonites, you shall be our commander over all the inhabitants of the Gilead. End quote. So they basically changed their offer from temporary command to permanent leadership. To which Jephthah replied, fine, whatever. I may be paraphrasing uh, there. He then went before the elders of Gilead, who made him, quote, commander and chief, not king. But that sounds a lot like king. What follows is a fascinating recounting of the diplomacy between our friend Jephthah and the Ammonites. He sent their king a message asking what their problem is, to which they reply, quote, when Israel came from Egypt, they seized the land, which is mine. Jephthah replied with a long-winded answer about why the territory of Israel is not Ammonite-owned. It recounted the Exodus story, parts of the book of Joshua, and summarized, as you would expect, that the Lord had granted Israel the land. Now Jephthah made a vow, which was, quote, If you deliver the Ammonites into my hands, then whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me in the safe return from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and shall be offered by me as a burnt offering. And you can probably imagine that that's going to backfire. Anyway, diplomacy had failed. The book of Judges tells us, quote, The king of the Ammonites paid no heed to the message that Jephthah sent him. So the Israelites attacked and were triumphant, thanks to the intervention of the Israelite God. In all, Israel conquered 20 towns from the enemy. Just like Gideon, Jephthah is never described as a king. But also, like Gideon, he acts like one in all but title. For example, he asked the Ammonite king, quote, what is there between you and me that you have come to fight against me in my land? End quote. A sentence that paints them as complete equals. In the Bible, only kings speak like this. Otherwise, the land is described as belonging to God. This is very much in line with how nomadic kings in the Amarna period were identified. Ziru, whom we discussed, called his tribal lands my lands because he had attained a kingly authority over them. So, it's probably uh, that sort of structure. Anyway, getting back to Jephthah's vow, whatever would come first to greet him after defeating the Ammonites would be sacrificed, uh, you probably thought would come back to haunt him. Well, you were right. When the triumphant general came home, his daughter met him, quote, with timbrel and dance, end quote. But she wasn't dancing for long. Jephthah rendered his clothes and told his daughter what he had vowed to do. He accepted her fate and asked only to go for two months and bewail her maidenhood upon the hills with her companions, which seems reasonable, but also sounds like a pretty good escape plan to me. Amazingly, she came back from the hills. The book tells us that after she was sacrificed, it became the custom of the women of Israel to chant dirges for four days in her memory. And I think it's sad that we don't do that anymore. Anyway, Let's conclude this uh, long-winded recounting of the social and political structure in uh, the book of Judges. The story of Abimelech, Jephthah, and Gideon, though a society with different tribes, cities, and loosely affiliated centers of power. It was a decentralized land containing several nomadic towns and configurations, one where leaders competed based on military prowess, bloodlines, and diplomacy. Aside from confirming the link to Canaanite culture, 
These stories also hint at the speculated relations between the Israelites and the Aparu, which was already discussed. These early leaders seem to have been semi-nomadic and have had outlaw roots. And, you know, where does the story of Jepetah, the rebel son of a prostitute, comes from? It certainly doesn't sound like something a priest would make up. It seems the earliest stories of the Israelites show a very different people, a wild people. And that story comes through in the book of Judges because it looks to me like the editors of the Tanakh didn't really change these early stories as much as they massaged them to put in themes that they preferred to have. But that's why I think Book of Judges is much more of a book of history than some other scholars might think. And we'll continue to analyze this in future episodes. But with that, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, but only if you're going to give us five stars. Otherwise, send me an angry email or a nice one or questions at historylandisrael at gmail.com. That's historylandisrael at gmail.com. And I actually was locked out of that account for a little while, so I haven't answered your emails. I'm going to answer them all over the next few days and keep very much on top of it and not get locked out again. I promise. Also, consider subscribing to my Israel Explained channel on YouTube, where I talk about current events like the war going on in Gaza, which does not involve the Philistines. Also consider supporting us on Patreon. Remember to follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and see you on the History of the Land of Israel podcast 